Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Good morning. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Glad that I am here. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. I know that uh, Easter is supposed to play to rave reviews in the Christian church, and it certainly does. But uh, it's, it's this morning, it's Christmas Sunday morning every year that is my favorite. We get to see folks that we haven't seen for a long time. Um, I was running around doing everything that it takes to get ready for church on a Sunday morning, and I looked, and Dustin Campbell and his family came in the back door, and um, um, it's like homecoming, right? More so than at Easter, it's at Christmas time. We get to see lots of faces that we haven't seen in a long time, and... Um, it's a great blessing to my heart. On Christmas mornings, uh, most Sunday mornings, uh, I preach. And on Christmas Sunday morning, uh, a few years ago, I decided that I was going to give that up. And it was because you all knew what the sermon was going to be. And uh, nobody was guessing anymore, what's he going to preach on Christmas morning? But I knew that there was a message still to be told on Christmas Day and, and it's the, the coming of Jesus into this world, that, that, that event that has captured the attention of the whole world. Those who do not share our faith, many of them still celebrate Christmas. And many storytellers have reflected upon Christmas and, and, and the truth that God loves the world and that he was unwilling to leave it in its sinful mess. And it's inspired them to write tales of redemption and of hope and of love. And so for the last, I don't know how many years, I've just decided that Christmas Sunday morning would be Uncle Cliff's story time. And I have another story that I want to share with you this morning. But before we do, I'd, I'd like to read to you just a little bit from the scriptures. Uh, if, you're, if you're not real familiar with the Bible, the, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four different versions of the Jesus story. Mark was the very first one that was written down, and Mark decided that um, he was just going to quickly get to the point. So he didn't write a single word about Jesus' birth and all of the mystery that surrounded it. He didn't give us one word about Jesus' childhood. He just starts with Jesus' baptism and ministry. Matthew and Luke both uh, kind of depended upon Mark's version, and, but they thought it was, it was incomplete. And, and so Matthew, who was writing to a Jewish audience and doing his very best to convince them that Jesus was Israel's long-promised Messiah, he quoted a bunch of scripture from the Old Testament and would say, well, as the prophets had written, so it came to pass. And he presents the Jesus story as the, the, the long-awaited Messiah of of Israel. Luke was, was not a Jew. He was a, a Gentile, a Greek, and he looked at the world very differently, and he thought that his people as well needed a savior. And so, not being acquainted with Jesus his entire life, he said, um, I'm an educated man, and I know how to do some research, and I'm going to go and interview some people. And then he set upon writing down a researched version of the life of Jesus. John, the, the, the fourth of those, of those gospels, the, the different versions of Jesus' life. John was certainly a romantic and a philosopher. He decided to tell the story of Jesus coming into the world 
in philosophical terms. Listen to it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him when he came. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. That story of light coming into the world has been uh, pondered and, and written about many times over. This story is by a man named Robert J. Morgan, titled A Blue Danube Christmas. The river Danube meanders 2,000 miles from the Black Forest in Germany to the Black Sea in Romania, linking 10 European nations and four capital cities. One of those is Bratislava, the political and economic center of old Slovakia. Although the communists are gone, their legacy hangs over the city like smog. You can hear it in the creaking trolleys and taste it in the grit that hangs in the air. But there are signs of life. The old town, dotted with quirky statues and whimsical sculptures, has become a stopover for travelers. Boats plying the Danube from Vienna to Budapest now dock in Bratislava so tourists can try Slovakian goulash and purchase local art. As observant guests notice, Bratislava is also home to a large dog population. Purebreds and flea bags, leashed and wild. This is a story of one of them, Blue, a mutt whose ancestry included a Euro mix of Irish setter, German shepherd, and Swiss mountain dog. Blue belonged, more or less, to Anton a 13-year-old with floppy hair and an easy grin. And Anton belonged, more or less, to Ilya, his older brother who ran a storefront cafe on Strakova Street. One day in December, Ilya and Anton went looking for a Christmas tree, a free one, for the cafe. They scavenged the Danube Valley a kilometer or two from their small flat. Blue ran on ahead with doggish energy, pausing periodically to dig for bones. The brothers found a reasonable facsimile of a tree lying in the mud along the banks of the Danube. It had toppled off a barge. They swished it in the river and gave it a good shaking, then lugged it to the tiny cafe, propping it in the corner. But it yielded no holiday cheer. Anton, said Ilya with a discouraged shrug, we need a woman's touch. This tree, it needs some help. Take blue, look for tinsel. 
some uh, lights maybe, who knows? People discard things, look for dropped packages and uh, abandoned parcels, check the trash cans, and keep an eye out for workers who are putting up decorations because you never know what people leave behind, huh? So the boy and his dog traipsed through the alleys and avenues until they came to the medieval streets of the city center. They watched workmen stringing festive lights across the central square and down its evocative lanes. Shopkeepers were doing the same with stores. The effect? Magical. The heart of Bratislava glowed. An accordion player bellowed out carols while hawkers sold roasted chestnuts from smoking barrels on cobblestoned corners. As Anton and Blue sauntered past souvenir stores, art galleries, and touristy restaurants, the boys searched for a strand of discarded lights, and Blue sniffed the air for discarded bones. A stream of drool trailed behind him. Suddenly, Anton saw a woman cross the sidewalk before them. Her voice sounded like the jingle of sleigh bells. Petrov, she said loathingly, if you have a moment, I'd like to show you the sculpture I'm taking to the cathedral tomorrow. The unveiling is at noon at St. Martin's, and I'm just getting it finished. I've labored on it for months. The woman bounded the single step of the shop and pressed through its gingerbread-style door, followed by an older man in a craftsman's apron. The woman reminded Anton of a mannequin. He guessed her to be his brother's age, about 26. She was clad in the latest with black ankle boots and a blue woolen coat. Her raven hair fell loose around her neck, and two glittering earrings matched the sparkle in her beautiful eyes. Her perfume fragranced the air like a bouquet of lilies. Anton couldn't keep his eyes off her as she disappeared through the door. And painted on the window were the words, Alzbeta's fine art, religious themes. Blue, whispered Anton. Did you see her? Come here, boy, sit. The boy and his dog parked themselves on the stoop leading into the store, and Anton leaned against the resisting door, pressing his back against the wood and glass until the door inched open ever so slightly. And putting his finger to his lips, he said, Be still, Blue. From inside the shop, the conversation continued. Here it is, Petrov, said the woman, just two pieces. The manger is carved from a small block of fine Carrera marble. And here is the Jesus figure. He's utterly unique, carved from bone. Well, it's exquisite, Algebeta, replied the aproned man. It looks like ivory. It has the same soft color and smooth texture. I've read about bone carvings and seen a few, but I've never attempted one. Where did you get the bone? It's the thigh bone from a camel that died of natural causes at the Hungarian zoo, said the woman. I bought it from a dealer from Budapest. The marrow had already been extracted and the bone was soaked and seasoned, which makes it much easier to carve and to craft. The Christ child in fine bone carving, Petrov exclaimed, and from a camel bone. Perhaps, who knows, it was a camel descending from the dromedaries used by the magi themselves. I doubt that, Petrov, said the woman with a laugh, but bone carving does go back to prehistoric times. The craft is as old as civilization, and it's the closest we can now come to ivory since elephants are endangered. 
Notice how the ivory-like color of the bone accentuates the rose tones in the marble. So delicate, gushed the man. The display at St. Martin's will be magnificent. Listening through the crack in the door, Anton heard almost every word. He was curious about the perfumed woman whose voice rolled through the air like sleigh bells. But the afternoon was deepening, and it was cold. An occasional wisp of snow brushed his cheek. Cramming his hands into his pockets, Anton pressed himself against the door, knees to chest, feet squeezed together, elbows stuffed beneath his undershirt and coat, head cocked with ear to door. Anton didn't realize another person was inside the shop at the moment, a rather bulky tourist who was loitering as his wife shopped nearby. The man suddenly saw he'd lost track of time. A glance at his watch propelled him toward the exit, and with a cursory nod to Aljbeta, he yanked the door. Caught off guard, Anton rolled backward into the shop like a circus clown, his imprisoned hands useless. He tumbled back in a half somersault at the feet of the exiting man. A set of paws hurtled over him. The dog's tail swept past his face, and in a blur of confusion, the boy twisted around just in time to see Blue flying across the shop like a cannonball and leaping up onto the counter. Aljbeta screamed. Petrov yelled. Snatching the Christ child, Blue juggled the bone in his mouth, clamped his teeth into it like a vice, and growled. He vaulted from the counter, feet pawing in midair. He landed off balance, straightened himself, and barreled toward the door, cutting between the legs of the heavyset man like a train throttling through a tunnel. The tourist lost his balance, crashed to the floor, and the ground shook. Statuary trembled on their shelves. Only evasive action saved Anton from being crushed. But in his peripheral vision, he saw his dog bolting into the street like furry lightning. Jesus, cried Alshbeta. The dog has my Jesus. Somebody stop him. A pair of black leather boots leaped over Anton as Aljbeta ran toward the open doorway. From the stoop, she pointed down the street, shouting, That dog has Jesus! My Jesus! Somebody catch the dog! Shoppers looked up at the commotion. Tourists stopped their conversations, and a handful of local citizens took out after Blue. Anton jumped to his feet, joined the chase with Aljbeta close behind. Blue was sprinting on all fours, ears back, tail straight, bone clenched in teeth. He headed instinctively toward the river where he felt safest. The pursuing mob gained size and speed like a snowball. Meanwhile, back at the shop... Petrov had the presence of mind to call the police. A large contingent of them was finishing security detail at a political rally on the right bank of the river. They headed toward the bridge leading to Old Town. Back on the left bank, Blue tore down Strakova Street, galloped by Ilya's Cafe, and rounded the massive corner of St. Martin's Cathedral. He's heading to the bridge, someone shouted. Sure enough, Blue had his eyes focused on the great UFO bridge crossing the Danube. This bridge is the most iconic structure in Bratislava. It's called the UFO bridge because Soviet engineers, wanting to create a dramatic piece of structural propaganda, designed a melodramatic suspension bridge topped by a sky-high restaurant in the shape of a flying saucer. 
Arriving at the bridge, Blue avoided the traffic lanes and dashed up the steps to the pedestrian walkway. At the landing, he stopped and laid his treasure on the concrete. He was panting heavily. The pursuing throng slowed as they turned the corner of St. Martin's. Catching sight of the dog, they bolted toward him like stampeding horses. But snatching up his bone, Blue bounded up the remaining steps and tore across the bridge. He was halfway across when he saw a flood of blue uniforms rushing toward him from the other side. The officers, too, were waving their arms and shouting. Blue stopped in his tracks, trapped. His teeth held the bone tightly while the corners of his eyes surveyed the impasse. His pursuers were converging toward him from both directions. He felt the vibration of the bridge as it trembled with moving traffic and running feet. The hordes were 40 meters away on both sides and advancing fast. 30 meters, 20. Both mobs stopped 10 meters on either side of Blue and the shouting died down. The dog emitted a threatening growl. His hair bristled, his ears were back, his muscles taut. No one moved. Anton, in the vanguard of the pursuers, took a step forward, speaking softly, his hand outstretched. On the other side, a police officer took a corresponding step. Blue dropped the bone and the officer burst toward the spot. To Anton, the next moments seemed frozen in time. Grabbing the fallen bone, Blue turned toward the railing, crouched like a cat, and leapt up with one smooth motion. His feet touched the top of the railing, which he used for leverage to fling himself into the air. His paws drilled the air like an Olympian, nose aimed toward the water. He descended with the symmetry of a Strauss waltz, plunging toward the swiftly flowing blue Danube. Anton gripped the railing and screamed as Blue hit the river far below and disappeared beneath its inhospitable currents. The crowd, standing in slack-jawed horror, emitted a collective gasp. I've never seen anything like that, said a man nearby. Like a suicide jumper, said another. Doggone, said a third man. And for the longest time, Everyone gazed into the river, eyes searching for any sign of dog or bone, but Blue never resurfaced. Finally, the mob began to disperse. At last, only Anton remained at the railing, shivering in the cold and in the biting wind, yet unwilling to leave. He turned and leaned against the railing. Slowly, his back slid down the wall until he sat on the bare concrete, his face buried in his hands and knees. He could not control the tears. But at length, he caught a whiff of lilies. Peeking through his fingers, he saw a pair of ankle boots. The woman in the woolen coat towered over him, arms crossed, face impossible to read. Was that your dog, she asked. Yes, said Anton. Well, that was my Jesus, she said. Yes, I know, sniffled Anton. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I loved my Jesus, said the woman. I loved my dog, said Anton. Yeah, I can tell, 
said Osbeta as she studied the trail of tears cutting through the dirt on the boy's face. I'm truly sorry for your loss. Come on now, I'll take you home. I can go home by myself, said Anton. Yes, but I'm going to take you anyway. You need something warm in your stomach. You're freezing. My brother's a cook, said Anton. Good, said Osbeta, because I'm hungry and cold too. Now, let's go. So within the hour, Osbeta was sitting at a stark table in a small cafe with its bare Christmas tree. Her nerves seemed to have lost the worst of their edge. She was warming herself with a steaming bowl of homemade chicken soup from Ilya's stove. Anton, on the other hand, found no comfort in food. He played listlessly with his spoon and occasionally salted his broth with a tear. But even in his lethargy, he couldn't help noticing that there seemed to be a little spark flittering through the air, like a lost lightning bug. Ilya was trying hard to be casual. Aljbeta was trying equally hard to be angry. She ordered another bowl of soup and asked how old the coffee was. I'll make a fresh cup for you, said Ilya. Thanks, said Aljbeta without expression. I just don't know what to do now. I'm supposed to debut an original crash tomorrow at St. Martin's and the Christ child is missing. He's gone for good, like that dog of yours. I have many other pieces, mostly in marble, but nothing appropriate to the set. Well, at least your dog's not dead, said Anton, dejectedly. He didn't mean it unkindly, but he hadn't experienced this kind of grief since he was a small child. Hey, Anton, said Ilya, come on, cheer up. There's always hope, huh? Dogs have a way of showing up again. They're they're like cats. They have eight or nine lives. Eight, maybe. Anton looked at Osbeta and asked, You saw him jump. Do you think he'll come back? The young woman gazed at the boy and shook her head. Truthfully, no. But I do think I know how you feel. I lost a pet I loved very much. It was your age. It made me feel as empty as... Her voice trailed off as she rose and turned toward the door. As empty as a manger with no Jesus, huh? Said Ilya, finishing her sentence. Here, let me get the door for you. Thanks for bringing the boy home. We're sorry about what happened. But Osbeta didn't move. She simply looked at Ilya curiously, her thoughts elsewhere on the words he had spoken. An empty Christmas, she said. Of course, that's what it means. An empty Christmas. Anton and Ilya looked at each other and shrugged. But the woman spoke again. You've caused me a terrible problem, she said. But you could help make it right. In the attic of my shop, I've got boxes with marbles and and carvings and sculptures that I've made through the years. Will you help me search them tonight? I need some pieces, and, and likely as not, they'll be in crates in the back. I have till noon tomorrow to assemble an empty Christmas. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll help, of, of course. It's the least we can do, seeing what's happened. We'll go with you, said Ilya. He grabbed his coat, nudged Anton from his chair, turned off the stove, and reversed the sign on the cafe door from open to closed. Braving the flurrying snow, the three lean figures, like silhouettes, wound their way through the now-darkened streets of old Bratislava. That night, rummaging around in the attic, they did find a solution. For the next month, 
visitors filed past an odd nativity scene in an alcove of St. Martin's Cathedral. The display was ringed by a heart-shaped strand of holly, exquisitely carved from green Italian marble. Inside the sculpted holly were several disparate items, a miniature version of a monarch's throne, a small marble manger, a wooden cross, and an open tomb. No explanation was given except for a small caption that read, The Empty Christmas. Most people eyed the display intriguingly and passed by, wondering what had happened to the baby in the manger. But there were other displays, other creches, and the crowds who threaded through the dim aisles and alcoves of St. Martin's tended to forget each display as they came to the next. The days passed. Midnight Mass and Christmas Day were soon over, and all over Bratislava, the decorations came down. Alžbeta, Ilya, and Anton packed up the display on New Year's Day and hauled the items back to the old town shop. Most of the objects were returned to the attic, although a few were retained to display in the store. And after everything was tidy, Ilya invited the little team to his cafe for the best goulash in Slovakia. I do think it was successful, don't you? asked Alžbeta. Even though it attracted little notice and, and most people didn't get it, I feel it was the most authentic Christmas display in the room. Yeah, I liked it, said Ilya. Why do you think most people didn't get it? Well, most people don't truly understand Christmas, said Alžbeta, sopping up the last traces of goulash with her remaining slice of boiled bread. They never think beyond the babe in the manger. But I was taught, and I still believe, that Christmas is about an empty throne, an empty manger, an empty cross, and an empty tomb, all of which fill our empty hearts. Yeah, said Ilya. It's a circuit. I was able to explain that to a buddy at midnight mass. Yes, said Ajbeta. It was a round-trip ticket with stops along the way. The Christ child left the throne for the manger, the manger for the cross, the cross for the tomb, the tomb for the throne. He left blessings behind at every stop. He, he emptied himself so we might be filled. That is the true story of Christmas. Ilya nodded in agreement. Makes perfect sense, huh? You, you understand that now, don't you, Anton? Wiping his mouth, the boy cocked his head and flashed a smile. Yeah. I get it. I thought it was the best display in the church, he said. I thought it was cool. How about you, boy? What do you think? And curled in the corner where the ragged tree had recently stood, Blue thumped his tail and gnawed on a bone. (laughs) Yeah. I I was talking with uh, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Bill and with Trevor before the service. And I said, "Um, I think the story is really a 20-minute introduction to my five-minute sermon. Because as I read the story, I came across this, this, this sentence. I believe that Christmas is about an empty throne, an empty manger, an empty cross, and an empty tomb, all of which fill our empty hearts. 
So this morning, on Christmas Sunday morning, I'd like to present to you one more time the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scriptures teach us that the Jesus who walked the streets and back country of Palestine 2,000 years ago is the God who has ruled the universe from eternity past, its creator, who watched the world break, come apart at the seams, and become something altogether different than what he had dreamed it would be, a place where he and human beings could live in perfect, healthy, holy relationship. And unwilling to leave it that way, unwilling to turn his back on it, God decided to enter the human race. Feel the power of that for just a moment. God left all of the rights and privileges of Godhood to come muck around in the mess with us. Um, How many people think the world's a little bit of a mess today? Yeah. How many of you, because of your Christian faith, have thought, you know, Lord, it'd be okay if you came and got us and we could be in heaven with you instead of in this mess. It was to this mess that Jesus came. Hey, Christians, please keep in mind that Jesus never for a moment defended his right to remain on heaven's throne. He willingly surrendered his right for the good of others. Lifestyle tip, okay? He left the throne. It was empty for a while. He came to earth, but we celebrate something more than uh, a, a sentimental moment when a baby was born in a manger. Two of those, uh, of those gospel stories tell us with sufficient detail that Jesus didn't just magically pop from baby to prophet, but that he grew up. He left that manger and he left that part of his country and he went and worked in his earthly father's shop. And Hebrews says that although he was a son, meaning a son of God, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. His life was difficult like yours and mine. He then embarked upon a teaching ministry And because he knew what his people Israel were looking for in terms of a savior, he kept fulfilling ancient prophecies that proved that he was the one that God had promised. Miracle after miracle after miracle. But the miracles were not to be the point. Jesus' life and death, resurrection, and his teaching, that was the point. Jesus was just validating his messiahship all along the way. By miracle after miracle, it got him killed. Because he went after old, dead, stuffy, hateful religion. And he seemed to have a soft spot and said, God the Father did too for people who weren't religious and weren't very moral and didn't live very respectable lives. They crucified him. They thought they were doing it as punishment, but he said, I give my life And after it had been proven that he had actually died, they ran a spear up under his rib cage into his heart and blood that had separated into solids and liquids came out dead. Took him down from the cross, empty cross, buried him in a tomb. And historical records tell us that there was a conspiracy. Records tell us there were two conspiracies. 
The Roman side of the tale says that uh, the followers of Jesus conspired to steal his body so that they could claim a resurrection and gain a massive following. The problem is there was a Roman cohort set at the tomb who all conveniently then claimed to have fallen asleep and stayed asleep while they, the other conspirators came and moved a gigantic boulder and stole a body. The scriptures tell us that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. And that he then appeared to groups of people, singles all the way up to groups of 500 at a time. And, and before a crowd of hundreds, he ascended into heaven and took his place back on that throne. And from there, he rules the universe at the right hand of his father. It leaves us with one empty that was mentioned in the book. Empty human hearts. Life, sh- life shows us that at some point in their earthly sojourn, every human being says, there is a hole in my heart, and nothing seems to fit in there very well. We try relationships with human beings, still find there's some kind of hunger. Try all kinds of, of adventure and reckless adventure and try to fill the hole and nothing quite fits, nothing quite satisfies. Augustine, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a man who suffered greatly for his faith said, it's because the hole is shaped like God. There's a God-shaped vacuum in, in the human heart. The human heart is not supposed to be empty or filled with clutter. The human heart was constructed to be the place where the God of heaven is invited to come and not to sit on a throne like you picture thrones, but one who comes and fills, feel that word, fills human hearts. A deep, abiding satisfaction for every human being who invites him to come and take the throne of their heart in that sense. He comes to be savior, the one who saves us from our sin-ruined lives. He comes to be Lord, the one who is in charge of our lives, who directs us how to live. This morning, you may have come for brunch. You may have come because, you know, Christians should go to church on Christmas Sunday. But you may have come because there was something in your heart that was not yet full. And it just keeps drawing you back to this house of worship or others like it. If you find your heart continuing to pull you back to church, it's because something in you is bearing witness to what the scriptures themselves teach. There's a God-shaped hole in you. He wants to come and have healthy, holy relationship with you. The Bible teaches us that as many as call on his name, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. We've figured out it works something like this. If you recognize your need, confess it to him. Admit that there's been some distance between you and him and that a great deal of that is because you've tried to do life your own way and stiff harm him a little bit. The Bible calls that sin. God has promised that as many as will confess their sins, He will faithfully forgive. And upon forgiving you, he'll cleanse your heart and change it. He'll start making you new from the inside out. 
And he says, that's exactly the kind of place where I want to spend my time. And he fills the hearts of all who seek him. An empty throne, an empty manger, an empty cross, an empty tomb. But the story does not have to end with an empty heart. I'm going to pray this morning as we conclude the service. And you can pray with me too. And whether you've never done this before or you've done this hundreds of times, understand that God waits ready, willing, and able with a big old yes to come and forgive your sin, to come and change you from the inside out, and to come and be the closest friend you could ever imagine, your Savior and your Lord. Stand with me if you would, please. We like a Christmas story. We like a good dog story. But this story of yours, Jesus, keeps getting told and retold and retold and Probably none of us in this room will ever hear a Blue Danube Christmas again, but we'll hear your story, Jesus, because there's something in the human race that tells us, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back to this story, because there's something in our hearts that yearns to be united with you. Lord, this morning, we bring all of us to you, and we confess both our need and our desire to have a healthy, holy, and lasting relationship with you. Some are praying this prayer for the first time, really just after checking you out. They're they're inviting you to, to come and do all those things because ultimately they're asking you to be close to them. They don't want to do life without you anymore. They want that close, deep, tight, permanent connection. So Father... Forgive us of our sins. We've messed up life. Needed a million and one do-overs. Probably going to need a bunch more. Forgive us of our sins. Make us new. Do a bunch of it right now, would you? Just I don't know. Do you snap your fingers, Father? How is it that, that you work miracles? But would you, would you get a great big uh, jump start on a whole new me? but keep working on me over time too and make me like you. Come and live in me. Do life with me. I want to do life with you, God. And since you volunteered to be my Savior, I will gladly allow you to be my Lord because I need direction. I need some supervision. I need some oversight, and I need someone who gladly takes responsibility for me. I want to do life with you, Lord Jesus. I'd ask you, if you would, to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, just to allow privacy to the, to the people around you. If you prayed that prayer today, you're asking him, you know, I want to do life with you. I want to be forgiven. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Would you just lift your hand up very quickly and write back down? I'm not going to single you out. just want to know how to pray for you. Yeah, good. I see you back there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Over here too? Excellent. Good. Yeah. Right over here. Yeah. Fantastic. Anyone else? Yeah. Good. Mm Mm-hmm. I see you in the back. Lord, I love how you do what you do. You take these ancient stories and you breathe new life into them through your Holy Spirit, through um, imperfect lips, through a guy who repeats himself. You take this life-changing, life-saving truth and you bury it in the hearts of people. And I thank you for that. What you have planted in the hearts of people today, I pray now, Lord, that you would tend to it and you would grow it. And this, this new life that people have embarked upon today, Lord, I pray that you would make it rich and full and strong and forever. Don't let go of those who have reached out to grab a hold of you today, Father. Hold on to them tightly. Hold on to all of us tightly. In a couple of days, we'll, uh, we'll tear into some presents. Boxes and packing and all that stuff will be pitched out with the garbage. And the truth is that for a bunch of little kids, by the afternoon, they won't know where half of their <laughs> presents are. We want you to hold on to us tighter than that, and we're going to hang on to you tighter than that. You are life, and you breathe life into us, and we give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.